Well, before we get rolling this morning, I wanted just to take uh, a moment. I think throughout this series in Ephesians, it's helpful to sort of remember where we are in the context of this letter and what Paul is up to. So as a reminder, this fall we've given sort of this whole season prior to Advent to walking through the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And if you'll remember, way back in September, we actually started with Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in chapter 3. We started at the end of that section. And there Paul prays that, that somehow, through the work of, of God, through the work of God the Father, through the work of God the Spirit, through the work of God the Son, that we might become a new kind of people. And at the end of chapter 3, he prays that we might be a people who have deep roots, roots that go deeply down into this new identity we have in Jesus Christ. He prays that God might make his home in our hearts as his people, and right, that we might be a different, a changed, a transformed people, a people who are like a temple of the living God. So that's, that's what we're praying for. That's what we're asking God to do in our hearts and in our minds and in the, the lives we live together as a church these, these many weeks that we're studying these chapters. As the, the weather is cooling down and it's starting to look more like winter, let me encourage you, if you have a, a, you know, an extra 20 or 30 minutes somewhere on a Sunday or during the week to make yourself a cup of coffee or some hot tea and and to read this whole section in its entirety. You know, you could go all the way to chapter 6 if you want, or you could stop at the end of chapter 3. But just to let the text flow and, and help us understand what God is doing. So that's where Paul finishes in chapter 3 to briefly recap the ground we've covered so far in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 is, is this magnificent exposition of what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. That he's pursued us as a people, that he's, he's found us, that he's redeemed us, that he's called us to be his children. And that even in Christ Jesus, that the heavenly realms, even the unseen places that we can't see with our eyes, Christ is refashioning and reforming through his power and his love. So chapter 1 is, is this great story about what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. And then last week we moved into chapter 2 where Paul's focus turns to us, what's happening among the, the church, the people of God on the earth. And we, we walked through the story, the history of the church. Where Paul said, we, just like Jesus Christ, we were a people once dead, right? And, and our story follows the tra trajectory of the gospel itself. If Christ was dead, was raised to life, and ascended into the heavenly realms, well, we too are now participating in that same story. We were once dead in our sin. We have been joined to Christ himself. We've been raised to life. And we have even somehow ascended with Christ into that place of, of heavenly fellowship. We're now seated in Christ at the hand of God the Father. We enjoy the fellowship of his spirit. So Paul has, has described the story of the church. He's described what's happened. But today, as we move into verse 8, 
Paul wants us to, to stop for a second and to ask, how did all this happen? happen? What precipitated, what motivated, what caused this thing to take place? Essentially, how did you and I come to participate in the church, in the people of God? Was it something we said? Was it something we did? Was there an interview process somewhere along the way that, that gave us admission into this new people? How in the world did you and I get chosen to be part of this people? And in order to answer that question, Paul supplies us with one of his favorite terms. A term that he will use nearly 80 times in his letters in the New Testament. He says the way you and I have come to be here and participate, the, the how this happened, all comes down to what Paul calls grace. Grace, grace, and more grace. That's how we came to be part of this family. Been rescued by the grace of God himself. But that's a word that maybe because of its frequency, maybe because of our familiarity with it in the church, sometimes we need some help sort of reapproaching, rediscovering the depths of what that word means. And so this morning I want us to ask what is this grace by which God has brought us into his family? What does it mean? What does it look like? How do we trust more fully and deeply in it? And so in verses 8 through 13 this morning, we're going to see, I think, three different pictures, three different images that Paul uses to, to further expand our vision and understanding of what grace is itself. And I hope that you'll let those visions sort of challenge the, the assumptions that, that our hearts settle into, the preconceived ideas about, about how we function together as a people of grace. So if you'll turn with me to verse 8, let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Lord, thank you that we are here this morning, not just in this physical building but we are here in Christ Jesus. We are a people that were not a people at one point. Lord, we are gathered because of your mercy, your love, your pursuit of us, because of your grace. Lord, will you cause that word, cause all of your word to come alive to us today? pray that as I teach, may the meditations uh, of my heart, the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is how Paul picks up that stream of thought begun at the start of chapter 2, jumping in here at chapter, at verse 8. Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. 
So again, we're asking the question, how did we get here? How did we get incorporated? How did we get included into this family? And Paul begins verse 8 by reiterating, it is all the work of grace. God's favor, God's kindness toward us. This is all a gift, Paul says. We did not create the church. We did not construct the church. The church was not our own idea. Right? None of this is our own doing. And so just to sort of drive home that reality, I want you to turn to the person in front or the person behind you this morning. And as you look around at, at the church and our worship and what we're doing together, just say to them, none of this is my doing, right? I'm not responsible for any of this. Just try that out with someone next to you. I'm not responsible for any of this. Okay. It's a helpful reminder sometimes, right? We didn't start this thing. It's not ours. It's not our possession. And so any privilege, any comfort, any confidence we now experience in the church is not the result of something from ourselves, Paul says. It is pure favor. It is pure mercy. It is the grace, the gift of God to us. But even when Paul uses words like grace and gift... He has to sort of go one step further. He has to, to sort of remake and redefine those words. Because the world in which Paul lived and ministered, the Greco-Roman world, had their own conceptions of, of how grace worked, or how favor worked, or how gifts were given. And they were deeply tied up into this network of, of patrons and clients. This was how sort of the ancient world worked. And almost anyone in society would fall into one of these two categories based on, on sort of their status in society. If you lived in the Roman world and you had influence, you had wealth, you had power, then you were a patron. Right? You, you held a certain position in society. But in order to stabilize, in order to maintain that position, you needed the, the services, you needed the support, you needed the loyalty of the people beneath you. And so you needed patrons. And these two groups worked in conjunction with one another. Clients would, would be kind of the masses, the typical person in the Roman world, and they supplied work, they supplied services, they, they were faithful, they, they did things for the wealthy. And in return, those with power and, and wealth gave them benefits, right? They bestowed favors upon them. They gave them gifts of various kinds. And the relationship was basically an I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? You do something for me, I'll do something for you in return. Sometimes, I think if we are honest, if we stop and, and step back and assess the way we operate within our relationship with God. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that this is the way God's grace and gift come to us as his people. 
Right? That if, if we give our loyalty, if we give our thanks, if we give our allegiance, dare I say if we give our worship to God, that somehow then he's indebted to us to, to do something for us, to give us this gift, this grace. But Paul wants to drive home that this is not a picture of biblical grace. This is not a picture of the heart of God the Father. We are not God's clients. God is not our patron. God is our Father, and we are His children. And so Paul will go on to say that he does not favor us on the grounds of our loyalty. He doesn't favor us on the grounds of our service. God graces us. He saves us. He redeems us. He brings us into his family without regard to our past, to our actions. He says here in verse 8, God's grace has nothing to do with yourselves. It has everything to do with who God is. And so he goes on to say that the way we receive this gift, the way that, that this gift comes to us, is not through the patronage of God, it's through faith. Look in verse 8, right there in the middle. He says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And the word faith there could be understood to describe possibly a couple of things. Firstly, it might refer to our faith, a kind of response, a trusting response to what God has already done in Jesus Christ. God has done this already. We're simply responding, trusting in it. However, it may also, that, that word faith there may also re refer to the, the faith or faithfulness of God himself in Jesus Christ. That Jesus was totally faithful, totally obedient to his Father's will. And so he has made us his people on the grounds of, of his faithfulness. However we take it, whichever way we understand that word faith there, either way... It drives home this idea that faith is a gift. That faith does not originate in us. It's something God has done for us. Right? Faith comes from His initiative. Faith is knowing that God has rescued us because it was His desire. Faith comes when we recognize that we're a people not because of who we are, but because of who our God is. And faith is rooted in God's great love for us. Faith is a gift, just like grace is a gift. So if we, we begin to understand that God's grace has brought us into this new reality, into this new people, this new family as a gift, then we can also go on to see that God's grace has created something that we could not create ourselves. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Paul continues this line of thinking. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, was part of verse 8, not by works, so that no one 
can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul's just told is the gift of God. It's something he's given freely without regard to, to what we've done. But even then, sometimes we unspoken temptation in us to, to believe that somehow something in who we are might have solicited that gift. Right? Something in us might have worked a, marked us as, as more worthy candidates to receive that gift than someone else. And maybe something about who we are made us appropriate targets of God's grace and affection. And if Client and and patron relationships were something the Gentile world struggled with in Paul's day in understanding grace. Well, then his Jewish brothers and sisters often struggled with this idea of of works of the law. And that if, if they maintained these works, if they maintained their status, their identity as God's covenant people by keeping the law, then, then somehow they were brought into God's grace and affection through the keeping of that law, through the doing of those works. And so first century Judaism became sort of obsessed with this observance of a whole set of external markers, things that identified you as people of the law, people who kept the works of the law. God's people were were marked by the work of circumcision, God's people were marked by the work of Sabbath-keeping. God's people were marked by the work of eating the, the appropriate foods and, and maintaining a certain lifestyle to remain, to remain ceremonially, ceremonially clean. They even became marked by keeping an appropriate distance from their Gentile neighbors. These are the works Paul is referring to here. But remember, Paul finds a group of uncircumcised Gentiles. He finds himself writing to a people who have not kept any of these works of the law. They didn't keep themselves clean. They eat the wrong kinds of foods. And yet, somehow, they have been brought in and added to this people of God. So how in the world did that happen? How did they become in Christ? How did they become filled with the living spirit of God? Well, Paul says, clearly God didn't choose you because of the careful work you've done, because of the boundaries you've kept. If those were the standards, right, you, you wouldn't have a prayer. You wouldn't be part of this people. And so if, if the works of law keeping didn't add you to this people, then, then what did? How did you, Gentiles, become a part of God's people? I think Paul says in verse 10, it wasn't our works for us. Right? It was through an exchange of works, so to speak. Paul says, your works did not matter, but the works of God have. And so the gospel is not about anything you've done. It's about something God has done for us. The gospel is God inviting us to exchange our works 
in order for him to do a work in us. That's a second picture of what grace means. Right? Yielding the work of our hands to become the work of God's hands. So he goes on in verse 10 and he says, By God's grace we've become God's poema, is the Greek word there. And your translation might render that God's workmanship, God's handiwork. One translation even renders that God's masterpiece. By God's grace, not your work, God has reworked you. God has made you his handiwork, his masterpiece. And if you look at verse 10 in your there, Ephesians 2.10, it's loaded with the language of creation. The language of new creation, of God forming and fashioning something, just like he did way back in Genesis 1. And the idea here is that the church is, is not something that we have constructed, but it's something God has done ex nihilo. Something God has created out of nothing, right? Out of his grace, out of his kindness, out of his affection for us. Again, the church is the work of his hands, not ours. It displays his beauty, his craftsmanship, his artistry. One of the most visually sort of stunning and breathtaking landscapes I've ever seen is the, the Yellow Mountains in China. And if you've ever seen paintings like this one, you'll know sort of what I'm talking about. There's these, these sort of unique granite formations. There are these sort of strange-looking pine trees on the mountains, and there's mist that hangs in the valleys. So years ago, when I had a chance to, to visit there, I wanted to purchase a painting right, to remind me of that landscape, to remind me of God's incredible creative power and beauty in that place. But I ended up purchasing this painting, and there's sort of two levels to this painting. You can step back from a distance, and you can appreciate the contrast and the detail from far away. But if you get up close to this painting, you'll notice something unique. The artist didn't actually create this painting with a brush. These aren't brush strokes. In fact, he used his own hands to create the painting, right? And so, if you look up close, you can even see the, the thumbprints and the fingerprints and, and the nail markings of his hands in the ink, right? The, the image is literally the work of the artist's hands. Here at the end of verse 10, Paul says, we too are the work of God's hands, created by our God to do his good works, right? We didn't create ourselves, God created us, and now God's good work is on display through us. He's created us to be agents and, and images of his new creation power. And so I wonder, when, when people see the church in Jericho, my hope is that they wouldn't stand at a distance and just say, wow, look at that nice, impressive, organized group of people. Wow, look at that group of people. They seem to pretty much have it all together. Right? They've, they've crafted quite a community for themselves over there. 
My hope is that they might get close enough to us. And they might begin to see up close the sort of details that comprise this place. And that they might, they might instead revise their opinion and they'd say, man, that's a church full of sinners and weirdos and truly human beings. But there's some kind of beauty at work in the way they're being brought together. Instead of, of distinctive rules and boundaries... Right, that they might see God's fingerprints smeared onto us and shaping us and forming us to look more like Him. And like the people of Ephesus in Paul's day, they'd be reminded that God has, has used some rather unlikely raw materials in making a people for Himself. Yet they'd see God's grace at work in us. So Paul has given us Two images of grace here. First, he said grace is a gift, unmerited, undeserved. Secondly, grace is an exchange of our works. We give up that claim in order to have God work in us. Thirdly, Paul will say it is a story of our immigration. An immigration story of God bringing us into a new people. Look with me at 11, 12, and 13 in closing. Therefore, Paul says, because you are God's workmanship, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul describes here the work of grace in bringing us into the family of God. He's describing a kind of immigration story. Some of the most fascinating people to sit down and have a conversation with are immigrants. Because they're people who have left behind a, a home somewhere else in order to pursue a new home. And they're, they're people that stand between two realities, in a sense. Right? Immigrants have a memory of where they've come from. But they are in a new place, and often they have a unique perspective on, on the place in which they now reside. A perspective that sometimes the people native to that area overlook or don't see. So Paul, to give us this final image of grace here in this short section, asks us to remember the story of our immigration into this family. Right, ask yourself, how did you come to be here this morning? How did you find your way into God's family? Right, think back on that journey, on that process. Paul will say, none of us began as citizens. It is the work of grace that has drawn us in. And we are a surprising group of people. God has added to the pews this morning 
a surprising group of people, the work of his grace. In verse 11, Paul describes some of the tension that, that goes together with that, that surprising, that gracious work of God. And he describes there how he and his fellow Jews used to think about the people that are now part of his church, right? The Gentiles. And he, he says, in short, remember when we used to mock you? Do you remember when we used to call you the uncircumcised? And there, they're using a Greek word that refers to a particular part of the anatomy. It's a slur. It's not a kind word. Do you remember when we used to call you that? When we used to just sort of write you off as the unclean? Do you remember when, when the people of God, the people of Israel, prided themselves on the work they could do with their own hands, right? That they could circumcise themselves. They could do God's work for him. And they could keep you at, a, at an arm's length, right? Keep a, a safe distance away from the Gentile world. Paul says, remember when there was that division, that separation. And some of that sounds crude or, or maybe offensive to us, but I wonder if we need to stop and, and think about whether we ever use language, ever use attitudes like that for the way we think about the people outside of these walls. Right? Are we ever dismissive? Do we ever use titles? Do we ever sort of write off what God might be doing out there? I know I have. I know it's an easy pattern for me to fall into. I think Paul is challenging here for us the the ease with which we take satisfaction in our place inside the church. Right? With a, a kind of devil-may-care attitude about the, the world of foreigners, the world of the unsaved, the unclean. And so Paul says, we need to hear what God has done. We need to hear how he has worked. We need a, a bigger picture of how his grace, in fact, operates. And how he took those who were foreigners, Paul says in verses 12 and 13. Those who were once excluded. Those who were once separated. Those who were cut off. He took a godless group of foreigners and Gentiles. And he brought them right into the middle of the church. And said, this is what I've desired to do. This is the work of my grace. And instead of insisting that they circumcise themselves with human hands, God provided the work of, of circumcising and making clean their hearts. He provided them grace and salvation in the work and in the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, you've been reconciled. You've been resurrected. You've been made a people through the blood of Jesus Christ. God sponsored your immigration papers. He welcomed you in. He has taken you to be his people. He took those who were far away and he brought them near. That is the work of grace. And here Paul has in mind the prophet Isaiah. And I think it's a subtle reminder to the Jews who might eventually read this letter as well that they once were far away. They once were exiles too. And in, in Isaiah 57, Isaiah is prophesying to the exiles in Babylon. 
and he's giving them the message of God. And God says, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For my message is peace, peace to those who are far and those who are near, says the Lord. He's bringing them back so that he might heal them. God's grace desires to bring us in from far away places. So in conclusion, I wonder what that says about our mission and our identity as the people of God this morning. If God has found us and given us a gift that is fully undeserved, unmerited, if God has exchanged our works in order to do a new creation work in us, if God has found us in faraway places and drawn us in, then the church does not exist for the pleasure of those who are now here. Right? It exists to reach and, and, and to bring God's grace, the expression of his love, to those who are still far away. Right? The church is a family that lives to be in mission. A place practices welcome and hospitality because we know we are people marked by the blood and the sacrifice of God's own son. We are sons and daughters of God's grace. We are together the work of his hands today. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you have caused something beautiful, something powerful, something full of life to come into existence. And that we have had nothing to do with it. It is your design, it is your grace, it is your power at work in us. Lord, may we respond with worship and gratitude and humility. May we long for new brothers and sisters to be welcomed into that grace today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.